Good evening and welcome to Transatlantic History Ramblings with Lauren and Brian. This is Brian in Buffalo, New York, USA, and with me as always... It's Lauren from Swansea. How are you, Brian? Still uh, getting over my revelations last time? I was going to ask if you found any bombs lately. No. So if anybody in our family is going to find bombs these days, it's going to be Theo. <clears throat> Well, you know, I was thinking about this afterwards, and my brother pointed out to me that when we were kids, where we grew up is Native American land. The region of the country we live in and were born in and raised in was Native territory before, you know, the horrible blood of of our country's past. So, when we were kids... We used to dig in all of our backyards, me and our, uh, us and our friends and things, looking for, like, Indian relics, arrowheads and things. We never found any. Oh. But other people did. I mean, I knew people who found stuff, but uh, the, the guy who lived, like, next door to us, they had this big, huge, deep backyard, which we used to call the woods. It was, like, this forest back there, which, in retrospect, we were kids. Like, looking back, it was probably, like, six trees or something. <laughs> but uh, never found a bomb. I don't recommend it. It was pretty dramatic. So, that's, um... Yeah, we've gotten a couple emails about that, Lauren. I just... Surprise, surprise. Oh. And people are saying Lauren's got to be holding out other shit. Dish the dirt, Lauren. Dish the dirt. No. No, nothing, really. I mean, like... Well, I, I don't know. I, I don't know either. I can't even begin to, like, you know, ask what could be next, because that's just, that's one of the most bizarre things I ever heard. <laughs> yeah. Oh, the UK. <laughs> yeah. How is the UK, Lauren, now that, you know, on, uh, you know, I know the fourth wave of COVID is striking every day. Um, we've not had it yet. Um, everything seems to be going right. But there is um, big caution about opening up again now because um, France um, has been hit. But then again, I don't know if they're, if, because they were messing around with the vaccines. Because they decided that the vaccines weren't... Their scientists said, yes, it was. They started giving the vaccines again. But in between that, the rate of infection rose again. And I know that they were cross with us because our government took a risk and ordered um, ordered, ordered vaccine when the EU ordered vaccine, then changed their minds and pulled out of the deal and then said that they were going to stop they were going to stop the country sending the vaccines to us because they should get the vaccines first. Now, you got your vaccine? No. I got my first one, you know. I've got to wait to be called because it's because it's all done by the NHS. I have to wait. They send me a letter saying I can turn up at the... Um, there's, a, there's a vaccination site very close to where I am. I, I got... So I'll just get a letter saying go, and then I'll go. I got my that. first one, and... Uh... Everybody should get their vaccine. And uh, I got to give them credit. Yeah. In where I got mine done, it was the most wonderful, efficient. It, it was it was really crazy. Uh, I mean, I was expecting it to be a shit show. 
But, you know, I made my appointment, and I showed up to the place. Uh, you walked in. Uh, you were, you know, six feet apart from everybody. You walked up to a table. You showed them your ID. They told you, all right, go back there, and then they'll tell you which table to go to, judging by your name, because it's all alphabetical. And then I got into the room. I stood in line for, like, two minutes, and they said, okay, go to table 10. And I walked over to this table, and I sat down. They asked me a few questions, which I, it was embarrassing to tell them that, no, I was not pregnant. And um, then they said, which arm do you want it in? Roll up your sleeve. Bing, bang, boom. Go sit in the little waiting room for 10, 15 minutes. Make sure you don't pass out, and then you're good to go. Yeah. Um, I, we used to have... Um... We used to have school vaccines, um, like things for like um, TB and uh, meningitis. Mm-hmm. So I'm used to just turning up, you know, just going to a random place and being stabbed. Do you know which uh, vaccine you're getting? Um, I don't know. It depends. It it could be. Um, it would either be um. The Pfizer or the Oxford one. Yeah, I got Pfizer. My brother got Pfizer, too. And my brother had the best joke of anybody I've heard so far when someone asked him if he had any side effects from it, and he said, yeah, his arm was stiff. Get it? Pfizer makes Viagra? No? Yes, they do. You don't get in it. So, yeah, no, I do get it. <laughs> you just, just didn't like it? Laughing. No. Are you going to make me tell jokes? So, um, now it's spring again. <laughs> um, has your brother's fox come back? Not yet. Um, Dr. Foxy has not been back yet, but it's early spring. Remember, we're in Buffalo, so it still stays cold for a while. But uh, hopefully soon, Dr. Foxy will be back. Maybe with baby Dr. Foxy. That's what he's hoping. He's hoping he's a grandpa. Oh, actually, I have, um, did I tell you, um, everybody asking you to dish the dirt, did I tell you about the time a bat got into our work? <laughs> no! Yeah. I wasn't there that night, but it's hilarious watching everybody on the CCTV try and catch it, and then just turn around and go, if you'd have hurt it. What would have been even better it. is, Lauren, was this your job at the theatre, right? Yeah. Imagine if it got near, like, the projection booth window and just opened its wings and the screen just had the big bat logo. <laughs> <laughs> that would be hilarious. Like the bat well, signal. The thing is, though, it's really... In in the UK, they're protected. They're a protected species. I think they're protected here, too. And so you're not allowed to touch them. And there were these images of people trying to grab them and, like... Um, um, trying to catch one, and I was like, "Well, if you'd have caught it, and it would have been hurt, you could have been facing like criminal charges." But it's really difficult to get rid of them as well because you've got to have an ecologist to go in and actually find out where they were living, and then get somebody with a bat license to go in there and take them out. Hey, Lauren. So we don't know what we don't know what happened to it. Why did you not bring up this story a couple fucking episodes ago when we had Dracula's great-great-nephew on? Well, I named the bat Stoker, and everybody's like, why Stoker? So I explained, and I also said, well, it's good for a boy or a girl. So, I know. Yeah. It, I just don't think about these things. They happen, and it's just kind of like, meh. 
<sighs> Bombs and bats. Yeah. It, if I'd have been there, I'd have tried to catch it to take it home. So. Now, it's been a week since Hollywood was here. Yes. Have you had a chance to introduce uh, Theo to the wonderful world of Jean? I have, yes. And is he taken um, with her? Yes, he is. Of course he She's is. She's now his girlfriend. He likes her hair. Did you show, like, recent, or did you show her back from when she was wrestling? Um, um when she was wrestling, because that's what we could find on YouTube. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's Hollywood. Oh, but tonight we got a super, super badass guest. <laughs> yes. But also he remind he wants me to remind you that you promised him that um, you'd get Carmela to say hello to him. I'm trying. I'm <clears throat> trying. It's just I haven't been able to get in touch with her. But He's going to remember. I got to tell you something right now. A little disappointing news. Oh, dear. Physics Dave can't be with us tonight. Aww. Oh, no. I know, I know. Your little crushy crush on Physics Dave. And you know what that means? It was meant to happen, but unfortunately due to a power cut that um, we weren't able to talk to our guests, so he has to reschedule. But it also means that we're on our own with the physicist. I know, that's kind of scary. I know, because like Physics Dave is like my interpreter. But I think we're no, going to be no. good. Now, I have listener para. questions. He's, oh, it's going to be great. Dr. Impey is going to be here. And I am, I'm so excited about this one because, I mean, this is, this is, you know, physics, astronomy, heavyweight. You know, this guy is, you know, we had Lawrence Krauss on. If, yeah. and, and, and there's this like Mount Rushmore. And Krauss and Impey are two of the people on this Mount Rushmore. I'm going to ask him which one would win in an arm wrestling match. Dare me to? I don't need to, because you're going to do it. <laughs> I'm going to. Who do you think? Who do you yeah. think would win? Um, well, I'm British, so I'm going to have to say Professor Brian Cox. He's not involved in it. It's either Impy or well, Kraus. <sighs> Impy's, a, Impy's British, too. Okay, then I'll have to go with the Brit and say Impy. He is, oh, he's coming on. We're going to talk about black holes. We're going to talk about physics. We're going to, I don't know what we're going to, we got some, like I said, we got questions from listeners. Um, he might get really disgusted with, you know, with me being, you know. pro planet Pluto? Yeah. <laughs> I, was, I wasn't even going to bring that up this time. Thanks for reminding me, Lauren. You you were going to. You were just going to pretend, oh, no, I won't do that. You, the only time you wouldn't have done it is if um, is if Physics Dave was here because he would have beaten you up. Uh, you really think Physics Dave could beat me up? Yes. L- Lauren, come on. First off, I, have you really looked at Physics Dave? He weighs like 30, 40 pounds soaking wet. <laughs> Yeah, but he could still beat you up, like trip you up or something. Nah, ain't gonna happen. Yeah, but I think if you did, if you if you asked that question and Physics Dave was on, he he would be like, <laughs> yeah, he'd disown you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, whatever. I'm telling you. To quote City Slickers, I crap bigger than him. You need a new question, Brian. You really do. 
Though my my favourite answer still has to be Amandaloid because <laughs> Yeah, she did have a good answer. That was amazing. But we got some great guests coming up. I mean, I've 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 nailed down some good guests. Um we're we're jumping back into our wheelhouse in a few weeks and we're gonna talk the Jack the Ripper case. Which is how Lauren and I met for those who are kind of new to the show. Um, I got Tom Westcott agreed to come on. Brilliant. He's yeah. fantastic. And you've never talked to Tom, have you? Um, no, no, I have not really, no. You... I know that I know that Mike Hawley is his spirit animal. <laughs> now, you've read Tom's books, of course, like all people in ripperology have. And they're great. Um, Bank Holiday Murders is one of probably my five five to ten favorite ripper books of all time is tom westcott's bank holiday murders even though i disagree with it you know you don't have to agree with a theory to to really enjoy the book and the work but he gets, he gets a lot of stick from people who really shouldn't be giving him a lot of stick though, so. yeah but let me tell you something lauren and this is a little warning for you and for the listeners tom westcott's a midwest version of myself Oh, that's going to be hilarious. <laughs> Me and Tom have been on other shows together, and let's just say... You got banned from being on those shows. Uh, together, anyway, yeah. But, um... Like, yeah. I, I can't imagine you both on together on Rippercast, because they're very serious in what they do, and they're brilliant oh, in what they we, do, but they're we, very serious. Tom and, and I, did I can an imagine episode, you... Tom and I did an episode of Rippercast together. On. Getting your bottom smacked. Well, here's something that for people who listen to RipperCast, they should. It's actually, did you know it's the oldest true crime podcast out there? No, I didn't. I, I knew it was one of the first, but it's one. It's the first, isn't it? It is the first. Um, RipperCast is officially the first true crime podcast. Um, and Jonathan Mengus, who hosts it... Uh, great job unbelievable show um his knowledge is unbelievable too like if you go on there and you speak about things that aren't jack the ripper he's he's done his research he is spot on with everything that he's yeah he, he's he's incredible and the show's incredible and um you know i've been on a few episodes uh tom's been on quite a few episodes obviously and uh the great thing about that show is he's a little uh, dish the dirt from the inside. For every hour you hear on that show, like if an episode's an hour, an hour and ten minutes, they're recording for like four or five hours. Our show, it's pretty much one take and go. We're like the Ed Wood of podcasts. Yeah, we are. But on that I show... I like that description, because I love Ed Wood. Yeah, and, and it's just so weird that, you know... I doing Rippercast and they're so professional and so good and a lot of it is just everybody shooting the shit and you know having a good time so you know me and Tom have you know probably caused several of those things to go several hours but um, it's fun stuff but Tom's going to be on here and uh, it's going to be you're going to love him um, I'm trying to scare you a little bit saying he's a lot like me but but in reality you're going to so love scary. him because he's Tom's brilliant. Tom's another one who, you know, all joking and all laughs aside, is just 
a really smart guy, and he really knows his shit. And what, what's amazing about Tom is him, he and I really don't agree on much of the case. But yet we both get along still. Because, like I said, you don't have to agree with someone necessarily to to appreciate them. Well, I think as well, it's what you both um, appreciate as well is that you will never know. No, and yeah, we like both admit that. could be right, it could be wrong, and you both could be wrong, and someone else could be right. And I think um, while you do take your theories seriously, you don't take them, you know, to, to the extreme. No, and we both Tom and I always say we'll never know for sure, so you got to just... You know, here we're putting out our theories, our our hypothesis, actually, not our theories. But well, yeah, and I think you're very open-minded. Like you have your personal beliefs, but your theory, you know, your theories are your theories. But you're willing to listen to someone who is reasonable and has exactly like I said, uh, Bank Holiday Murders is one of my favorite books ever on the topic. I don't yeah. agree with it, but I don't disagree with it. I'm just saying it's not my particular. Yeah, it's a valid uh, theory. A lot of the people that have issue with it are jealous because they can't write as good as he can. Do you remember when he when he had to do that documentary? Um, one of the big channels did a documentary, and Tom was the featured uh, ripperologist on it. And I took the screenshot from it, and I superimposed my head on it, and sent it to his Facebook page as that was my Halloween costume. <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah, no, I remember that. That was a lot of fun. Oh. But, no, a, a lot of people have sort of... Well, not a lot of people. It's, like, two people. And they've sort of... Um, sort of disparaged his work with no... With with no real necessary... And it's those... One of them is that... Is somebody that thinks it was that... You know that guy that found the body? And they yeah. think he did it. And they're like, no... But Tom's coming on. We're going to have a great time with Tom. Um, and I do want to warn you, we'll probably get way off topic a bunch of times with Tom because that's how me and him are. But, uh, but I'm used to that because of um, Paul Bag. We did that happen with Paul Bag. <laughs> we were there for hours. You know, we, you never know what we'll find out on an episode with Tom. We might find out that Lauren found a bomb in her backyard. <laughs> Yeah, we were really done that. And, and like the last like month of episodes, you've unveiled that the Hoff hangs out where you are. <laughs> you found a bomb. I didn't find a bomb. Your family found a bomb. The Hoff hangs out there. Batman invades your theater. <gasps> Maybe it's Bat Boy that was in your theater. Aha. Uh-huh. That's another surprise I wanted to give you, Lauren, is that... Actually, oh, no, we do need, because I know that Bat Boy must be really sad, because, you know, his create, his, his the guy that was writing all his stories and, you know, making sure we knew all about him, passed away. He did. So he Bat Boy's father sad. passed away. But yeah. our great friend Greg uh, Alessandro, the editor-in-chief of Weekly World News, will be joining us again in the near future. And That's fantastic. They've got is some that... exciting news and some stuff to uh, to release to the public, and they're going to come on our show and do it, and Bat Boy might join them. 
I'd be very interested to give my condolences directly to that boy. Yes, and remember, don't get too close, he does bite. Well, he's a bat. And, and a boy. possibly a vampire. But, uh, so we got bat boys, bombs, Hasselhoff. What else have we, what haven't we covered, Lauren? What, what else is going on in the world? I don't know. I don't know either. I do know that Dr. Christopher Impey is going to be joining us in just a few minutes, so we better go to our <clears throat> Today in History. History, history, history. Eh, it was okay, huh? Well. This is all right. It'll do. Ready for mine? Always. April 12th, 1954. Today in history, April 12th, 1954 could really be considered the birth of rock and roll. Two singles were released on this day, 1954. Bill Haley and the Comets Rock Around the Clock and Big Joe Turner's Shake, Rattle, and Roll, both released today, 1954. What you think about that, huh? That's really good. I've got a better one there. I always have a better one, I think. you got something better than the birth of rock and roll. Yes, I have got... I always think I have a better one than you. Of course. And mine is the 12th of April, 12.04, the Fourth Crusade sacks Constantinople. Okay, how is that better than the birth of rock and roll? Because it was the Crusade, and the Crusades were hilarious and dramatic and... Um, I mean, you have things like maps being drawn up not to directly take people to the Holy Land, but so that monks and people that weren't able to take up the cross and go on crusade were able to go around their monastery or their village or their estate and follow the route using this map. And, they, you know, so you've got all this different ways of, of being a crusader other than leaving your home and it just it, it was just inspired so much craziness shake rattle and roll that's craziness it caused craziness rock and roll lauren i prefer the crusade i prefer the crusades lauren i always will yes so you said something about those monks were they hung monks <laughs> Oh, God, no. Don't, you can't do that. We've got a very serious academic on our show now. <sighs> Big Joe Turner, Shake, Rattle, and Roll. And Rock Around the Clock by Bill Haley and The Comets. The Comets, Lauren, taking us back to the cosmos. What a great segue to our guest, huh? Indeed. All right, let me fire it up. It's the Magic Interview Box. All right, and I am going to flip the switch, and when I come back, neither of us will be the smartest person in the room anymore, Lauren. <laughs> well, I, well, I'm well, i always the smartest person when you're in the room. Well, yeah, well, wait until we flip the switch. <laughs> Lauren, it worked again, and this time, this magic interview box is like going way above and beyond its job, because I have got science superstar physics yes it defies physics lauren science superstar 
Dr. Chris Impey is with us. I mean, this guy is like, okay, he's like the Babe Ruth of of of, of physics and, and black holes. And I mean, it's no pun intended. I'm starstruck. Okay. Yeah. That's very not nice to hear. I hope we can have a freewheeling conversation about whatever you want, actually. Well, first things first. Who wins in an arm wrestling match, you or Lawrence Krauss? Uh, Lawrence Krauss. Uh, you know, I've got probably 10 years on him at this point, and uh, I don't think he works out that much, so I th- I- I'd bet on myself. For there you one. go. There. <laughs> See, Lawrence? But he's a- but he's a physics heavyweight for sure. He mm. is. He is. But uh, and are you going to move? Are you going? Are you going to move your favorite question now to the beginning of the program? Ooh, that's a good idea. Pluto. Is it a planet or not? No, we astronomers were hard-hearted on that one, I and mean, it was demoted. <laughs> it was demoted what 15 years ago. I was actually in the room in Prague, <gasps> where the International Astronomical Union did the vote. Uh, one of the problems with the vote as was reported afterwards was there were only about 500 people in the room that sounds like a lot but the organization has 8,000 members so the plurality Pluto plurality to demote it was pretty pretty mild it wasn't a slam dunk and so you know people afterwards said how could you let a few dozen people decide the fate of a planet you know what, what's that about um, I'm with so I don't work on planets I, I don't have skin in the game particularly but the rationale is pretty good. Um, it's an interloper. It almost certainly was captured in the solar system. It's way smaller than other planets. We've already found things bigger than Pluto further out. So it doesn't. You either are forced. If you don't want to lose Pluto, you've got to add planets beyond it to make people remember their names too. So yeah, I'm persuaded that it doesn't really uh, have the status of a full-on planet. Well, you see, we sell pro-planet Pluto merchandise. Hashtag yeah. ProPlanet Pluto. And, well, uh, and it's a, cartoon, it's a good, beloved cartoon character. That's true. And, yeah. and it was a little unseemly how they waited until Clyde Tombaugh had been dead for a few years they got rid of his planet. Well, yeah. And, and, you know, I have a theory that if they would have named it Zeus like they originally wanted to, there's no way in hell they got rid of it as a planet. Probably, right. And I don't know. <laughs> a lot of problems in Greek mythology are caused by Zeus. So if they got rid of it, then maybe they would feel that all the um, all the problems in 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 the world would stop because Zeus wasn't there meddling anymore. <laughs> Again, <laughs> I mean, uh, now that you're talking mythology, the, a little aside on that: the astronomy, the official body, the International Astronomical Union, they have all these naming rules and conventions for solar system objects, and you know, and they're kind of they're kind of fussy about what you can call things. Astronomers name things all the time when they find them, and then they get overruled by the governing body, basically. And so I don't think most astronomers were picking Greek or Roman gods or anything like that. They were picking pop culture figures and, you know, and doing it a little more interestingly and edgily. But we get overruled. So basically, we have a very smudgy governing body. They're running out of all the big name gods anyway. (laughs) Yeah, all the good gods are taken. Right. You know, it's time Sorry. to... Uh... You still have um, have the Titans to go. The original gods. The gods of the gods. So you'll be okay. And then <laughs> they're working their way through, you know, being 
little more 20th century, they're working their way through non-Western gods. So there's there are no there's a good set of astronomical objects that are named after you know Asian gods and uh, Pacific Islanders myths and legends. So it, it's getting a little broader in the in the footprint of who gets to name a planet and who they're named after. Just don't let a Brit name anything because um, there was a competition once to name um, a boat and um, the winning entry was Boaty McBoatface. So if if anything can be learned from that situation is don't let the Brits name anything, please. And as I recall, they, they overruled it, even though it was... Yeah, they did. They didn't use it, which is pretty unfair. Have a competition, get a people all agitated to vote online and then ignore what they do well that happened in america with one of the uh, school um mascot teams where they had to change their name and the the winning vote was the admiral akbars and that was the winning vote but the school wouldn't allow it well it's while still vaguely on the subject of pluto uh, michael brown a researcher at caltech who's who's done a lot of hunting for dwarf planets he's pretty much an expert on hyperbelt um and he found the first planet that rivals Pluto in size that's out there beyond Pluto that would, again, question why you would make Pluto a planet, you should make this new one, that he found a planet. And in the time before he got squashed by the governing body, he named um, it Xena because he was a fan of the TV show. <laughs> and not surprisingly, this dwarf planet has a little moon that was called, he called Gabrielle. And so... Um, I have no they, problem with that. That, would, that sort of was in the circles and at conferences and colloquia and papers were written for a few years and then it kind of got squashed. You see, see, that's cool. I think they should be allowed to name it things like this. Yeah. And I think now Admiral Akbar deserves a planet or at least a star or something. He, he yeah. should get named something. Which actually, that leads to the question, Star Wars or Star Trek? Well, um, the original Star Trek is pretty hard to beat. I mean, yes. Pathmaker, Pathfinder for almost everything that followed. So, and it's um, Shatner. Yeah, and it's Shatner, and it, and it had a short run, like three years, and it's incredible. If you think of the influence on media, on film, TV, science fiction, everything, from just a two-and-a-half, three-year run of one TV show, that's, that's pretty amazing. Physicists all go truck. It's, and that's, you know, okay, so I, I watched the, first, all the, the Star Wars movies, all seven or whatever, and, you know, a couple of them were pretty crappy and a couple of them were classics. But, um, you know, physicists and astronomers and scientists, they, they tend to get, they tend to react a little bit to the touchy-feely force stuff, you know, and the sort of woo <laughs> aspect of that, you know. It's, uh, it's not so much that they violate physics in some of the filming, because you're allowed, you get artistic license when you're doing science fiction, nobody's a stickler for all that stuff, you well, know, having, sound, having sounds in the vacuum of space, okay, fine. Um, so, you know, I'm not a pedant about any of that stuff, but some of the overlay, you know, some of the quasi-mystical overlay of that got a little, got a little much for me. A little hokey. And, and actually, I do want to stick with science fiction films for now, because you are like the black hole guru, Okay. Okay, thanks. And my introduction to black holes and really, you know, science was the Disney film The Black Hole. Yeah, 1980, I think. It was quite a that's a quiet. Wow, that's 40 years ago, hard to believe. Yeah. I yeah. got obsessed with it because black holes scared the shit out of me because of that film. 
Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it was of its time, 1980 and Disney. Um, so, you know, I remember, I, did, I, know, I didn't see it when it came out. I just saw it afterwards, just sometime on cable or TV or whatever. And, yeah, it was just amusing. It was just a confection, really. And, again, you don't pick apart the science of it. And it's way before good CGI special effects. So given the time, what they were doing was pretty good. Same comment can be made about the Star Wars movies. They were also for their time, given what you can do now, pretty impressive. Well, my question about the film is, apparently it was written about ten years before it was made. So you're talking about a film like that being written around 1970, Mm -hmm. where they really did not know nearly as much about black holes as they even did by 1980. Right. Um, Yeah. I didn't realize it was written that much before. Well, that is actually interesting timing because if people behind the film or the original idea or script were paying attention to the science news, then the the very first convincing evidence of a black hole was 1969. It was Cygnus X1. That was the first time astronomers, you know, essentially proved beyond a reasonable doubt that this object, this X-ray emitting binary system, has a black hole as part of it. And that got a lot of media attention at the time, so maybe they were keying right away off the first good evidence for any black hole, which mean which is even more interesting if it really gen if it really spawned a movie right away. Yeah, but then Disney shelved the idea for years because no one goes to see science fiction film. Oh, Star Wars sold how many tickets? Uh, let's get a science fiction film into production. <laughs> yeah, that's right. They guess they guessed wrong on that. Well, they they've made. A lot of bets, and mo- a lot of their bets have been pretty good, so we yeah. can't criticize Disney too much. But now, you said you didn't see it when it came out. What was your introduction? What made you so fascinated with, I mean, black holes? I mean, you. Well, I black got. Hole. <laughs> sure, I, I, you know, studied physics as an undergraduate in London, and, you know, we had some. I didn't have relativity until I was in graduate school as a, as a real class. So we had our sort of introduction to compact objects, neutron stars, pulsars, black holes, as part of a upper division course. So I got a taste of it there. Um, and then in grad school, I took a general relativity course. And at that point, you actually have the physics to understand the basis of a black hole from relativity. Um, but I wasn't working on black holes for a while. And then I, I got interested, actually, in the big black holes. So my research for many years was active galaxies, quasars, which are uh, pretty much clearly understood to be massive black holes that have accretion disks around them that are huge gravity engines putting out enormous amounts of energy. I mean, ironic that black holes can be the brightest objects in the universe. So that, I did yeah. research. Yeah, so the big black hole got you into it. Right. I mean, that's... We got some questions from, like, listeners when they they, they knew you were coming on. Mm-hmm. And one of them, I'm trying to read it because I'm not even going to pretend to be as smart as these people who wrote in are. And this was from Tim, who wrote in and said, um, Since we aren't sure why, there is more matter than antimatter in our universe. And since particle pairs are generated in the Hawking radiation process, do we think the black holes may favor pulling antimatter, antimatter uh, partner in while losing matter in the evaporation process 
Oh, okay. So that's a pretty high-level question. Yeah, um, I couldn't have made that one up. <laughs> I'll, so I'll, I probably should unpack the question so we know what is being asked. Um, so there is the matter, matter, antimatter, matter asymmetry in the universe. That's a, that's a whole big topic on its own, really. So probably won't go into that too much. But yes, the universe is overwhelmingly matter. Antimatter is rare. We can make it in the lab for brief instance of time, then it disappears into radiation by annihilating with matter. Um, and then the reason for that isn't fully understood. It's presumed to emerge from a, an asymmetry in the forces of nature very early on, so right near the Big Bang itself. And the mechanisms for that are, you know, pretty speculative. So there's, there's, there are rough ideas in physics about how you might get a matter-antimatter asymmetry early on. Um, so it's not an unsolved problem, but it's not solved. Um, so that's that. Now, in the universe, which is overwhelmingly matter, black holes were, when whatever is inside a black hole that we can't see beyond the event horizon is matter. I mean, they're made from normal stuff, matter. And, uh, and then the issue of what happens at the event horizon, which is this um, interesting idea of Stephen Hawking, not yet confirmed by observation. So many of his best ideas are theoretical and people thought they were beautiful ideas and well worked out nobody's questioned them theoretically uh, but they're not verified by observation and in fact some of them are going to be very hard to verify maybe even ever the, the effect is so subtle and and this radiation from a black hole the Hawking radiation the fact that they evaporate very slowly those two things he predicted and we can't observe them now, and we may never be able to observe them. They're just very subtle effects. But the mechanism for the radiation, which is what the questioner is getting at, is something that happens near the event horizon. So because you've got particle-antiparticle pairs coming in and out of the vacuum all the time and then disappearing again into radiation, um, if that happens at the event horizon, there's a finite chance that one member of the pair will go in and the other one will stay out. That's, that's the gist of the mechanism. Um, the, the reason why it's, it's, saying it's counterintuitive because the origination, it seems like you're getting something for nothing from the black hole if you do this. The reason you're not is because the particle-antiparticle pairs are being generated from the vacuum of space. So they're, they're, they're being taken literally from vacuum energy. They're not originating from the black hole itself. They're originating from pure vacuum and they're location just happens to be near an event horizon. So if that happens and uh, the particle escapes, say, then you had a net loss of matter from the black hole because that matter didn't originate from the black hole, it came from the vacuum, and so you've got a black hole evaporating in, in slow motion. If it's the antiparticle that escapes, then the antiparticle will hit a particle almost immediately and turn into radiation. So you've created a photon, you've created radiation, and now you've got the black hole emitting radiation. So depending on which way you flip the coin, which way you look at it, you can equivalently think of black holes evaporating or having a very small uh, temperature for radiation. It's really small. It's like a billionth of a degree Kelvin. So that's, you know, that's a, that's a high-level question, and I, it took a while to unpack it, but that's sort of without getting all you know, mathematical on your ass, that sort of... Without us paying tuition. Yeah, that's right. Then it's then it's going to cost, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, see, this is why black holes scare me, okay? First off, because, you know, nothing can escape them, not even light, as 
the, the saying goes. Right. But the event horizon, when Physics Dave was, me and him were out having a cigar discussing this one time, about how when you would get to the edge of it, it essentially time would stop because the, 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 there's nothing, no reality on the other side. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's scary. Do you, do, how do you sleep at night? It's well, I don't sleep anyway. But I mean, I I, I have uh, any most astronomers have borderline insomnia or worse, uh, partly because you've spent some chunks of your life staying up all night. That kind of messes that kind of messes with you. I don't do it, of course, nearly as much as I used to, but I still do it enough, and it's not that hard for me. So I'm I'm always on the edge of disrupting my sleep cycle. And then there's a question of what you're thinking about when you fall asleep. And yes, it, it could be something deeply disturbing like the fate of the universe or being inside a black hole or what happens if a gamma ray burst goes off and is aimed at the earth or all that stuff or an asteroid you know rogue asteroid heading towards us and the telescope arrays just haven't picked it up yet you know you're all not that. making me feel better no that's no. true but these, <laughs> you know for all the stuff going on in the world if you really do make a worry list or have a, a worry pile, they're pretty far down it. You know, you're, you're going to work through some much more omnipresent. You're going to work through climate change and your pension and retirement and all sorts of things before you get to any of those. So it's all perspective. I don't know. Rogue asteroid might be pretty high up on my list now. Rogue asteroid, yeah. We've got it. Those are mostly covered. That That's one where we do actually have a plan. It's actually pretty advanced. I mean, we can momentarily take that detour um so nasa was tasked by congress about 10 years ago to find all the near-earth objects that are bigger than about 250 meters in size and that's a that's a boundary of a size that could really cause regional damage not not catastrophe but um serious damage so find all of those they were told actually it was 280 meters i think was the limit um and they did a good job. I mean, they got money from Congress, of course, to do that. And so networks of small telescopes, one-meter telescopes, you don't need a big telescope to do this. You just need a number of them with big views of the sky, wide fields. So those arrays have been working for six, seven, eight years, different observatories. We have one in Arizona. And uh, they've done very well. I mean, they've scanned the skies and looked for moving things and calculate their trajectories and sizes. And NASA has a website where they track, where they list any of the ones that are potentially dangerous or ominous. Uh, and uh, and there's a thing called a Torino scale, and but not a name after a person, but actually the place Torino. So some planetary scientists had a meeting there where they put a numerical scale on the level of uh, devastation would be caused by an impact and quantified it. So they, these, this NASA website lists these objects that are being found all the time by these telescopes, um, and, and it ranks them by the probability that they're going to hit the Earth, and they continuously update it. And it's sort of fascinating. It's mesmerizing in a sort of, you know, in a kind of doom-scrolling sense. <laughs> look, look at this website. Well, first of all, all the probabilities are tiny. I mean, it would be very unusual if you went to that website and saw a probability less than or more than 10 to the minus 10, like 1 in 10 billion. They're very low. And they keep adjusting them because they get better information, calculate the orbit better, get a better idea of where they're headed. And, and that's the basic reassuring fact, that space is big and these are small objects. And so the odds of a collision are just 
they're just tiny. It's just very unlikely. Of course, it will happen, you know, if you waited millions and millions of years, but in an average year or a decade or a century, it isn't going to happen. Yeah, I was going to say, I'd like you to meet my friend the T-Rex and uh, tell him it ain't going to happen. Right. So, so it is going to happen at some point, and you can't predict it, so it could happen 10 million years from now or in five years, and you can't really discriminate because it's random. Um, but the good news is, you know, keying off this data that they have that they put on a website, um, whenever an object uh, nudges up in the probability that it looks like we better pay attention to this one or these few, then they hit it with more of the telescopes in this array and they get better orbit, they get a better trajectory of it. Because the data is just very sketchy initially. You don't need much data to say, oh, that's not going to go anywhere near us. You know, just don't think about it. When something is going to be near, which still doesn't mean it's going to hit, you get better data. And usually, and almost always, it just isn't going to hit. So when you calculate the orbit better, that probability actually goes down rather than up because it, now you know really where it's going and it isn't going to hit us. So that's the first part of the good news. The second part is, should they find something that just says, wow, this is really coming on, and the better data it gets, the more they're sure. These are things that are still pretty far away because these telescopes were supposed to pick them up when they're hundreds of millions of miles away or a billion miles away, even in the outer solar system. And at the speeds they're traveling, you've actually got a few years to do something. So this is not like the movie scenario of a clock ticking down 24 hours and so on. It doesn't work that way. You've actually got a lot of, in general terms, a lot of time. And then the technology to do something about it also is, exists, and some of it's actually been tested, and we've seen it in the last few years. So you know these we rendezvoused with a comet, a couple of comets and asteroids. My university rendezvoused with Bennu, the asteroid, just a year ago, and bringing back a sample. So that that technology has been road tested out there. You know, you can send a spacecraft and soft land on a on a big rock in space. Well, if you can do that, you can send a spacecraft and tether into that rock and use rockets and retros to alter its trajectory. That's really not that hard. It's rocket science, but not that hard. So if we find something that is actually heading towards us, we just rendezvous with it and nudge it to a different uh, path, and then it passes harmlessly by. And you've got a few years to do that, so it's not like a super panicky thing. You'd send the space cowboys up to lasso the thing. Yeah, so that's the good news. The thing you don't want to do is the Doctor Strange love. You don't want to hit it with a nuke or something because we've got all these nukes that we aren't using, thank God. And then you could just take one of those, dust it off, and just blow the thing to smithereens. And the problem is that physics being a bitch, the smithereens have exactly the same trajectory as the original thing. So you've now just sent a lot of shrapnel, you know, which is smaller pieces, but they could, they're all ruin people's day or a city's day or a town's day, wherever they land. So that doesn't help you. So that's not what you want to do. I kind of did until you just said that. Now I don't want to do that. Yeah. Well, luckily the people with the, with the nukes are not in charge of this part of the government program, so they're not going to get to do that. No. It's not the Space Force. It's not this new Space Force. They're not doing that stuff. <laughs> no. Sp- yeah. Okay, what is the Space Force? We, well, know they, we know they took the Star Trek logo. <laughs> yeah, it's just some Trumpian fantasy of you know, projecting power into space and having a sort of militaristic orbital army or, you know, I mean, it's scary stuff because we want to 
the militarized space if possible. We're worried about the Chinese putting weapons up there and doing stuff because they're not very, they don't divulge a lot of the, what they do. They're secretive. So this is the American partial response to China, really. Um, but it's, it's uh, I mean, I, it's gone quiet. You don't hear much about it. Uh, the new administration hasn't disbanded it officially, but it's sort of starved of resources. I mean, as a fifth arm of, you know, fifth version of the armed forces, it's well. Key. I mean, yeah, I, that, that's what I was thinking because I know you worked very closely with NASA, and were they involved in this, or was it literally just a military branch? No, I was forced on them. NASA didn't really have anything to do with it, nor want it, because they actually saw it as usurping their you know, their appropriate civilian interest in space uh, activity. But there's always been a tension there. I mean, this, I'm sure you know the space shuttle was used for half its launches for military payloads, and we didn't even, we, nobody ever got to know what went up in those launches. Like, that's like 60 out of 130 shuttle launches were military. So there's always been a little interplay between NASA and the military in, in the sense that, you know, the military uses NASA's launch capabilities quite frequently until they got their own. Now, they found NASA to be too flaky, and the shuttle in particular was the limitations of the shuttle that led the military to develop their own rockets because they didn't want to rely on the shuttle. Uh, and so pretty much now they can do their own thing. Sort um, of like Elon Musk. Yeah, so it's it's the space... Yeah, but the Space Force is not... They don't have any grandiose plans. They don't have a big budget. Um, It's just not a very meaningful thing. No, it's even a dumb title for a bad movie. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Yeah, it's a sitcom on Netflix, Space Force. They made a sitcom about it. It's hilarious. Just make all these bad Trump jokes about how Melania is designing the uniforms for them and everything. Yes, I think I saw someone's... Sent me like I streamed one of those. It was pretty funny, actually. Yeah. No. So space Force, Space Force is not is not a thing. Anyway, the astronomers have got the impact thing covered pretty much, so it's not a high on the worry pile. All right, I got another listener uh, question. Jake asked me to ask you. Obviously, he didn't ask me because he wouldn't have liked my answer. Do you think we'll ever be able to harness energy from a black hole to use? Um. It's conceivable. I mean, the, the first limitation is that they're pretty rare objects. That's part of the reassuring answer to, oh, we're all going to get eaten by a black hole. <laughs> they're rare. We are. Only about only one in a hundred or one in a, maybe more like one in a thousand stars of any kind becomes a black hole. So the nearest one is a few hundred light years away. They're not, they're not anything like the nearest objects in space. So hundreds of light years is the nearest one. And we can't leave the solar system. So... That's a sense of how far away and how difficult to get to and do anything with it is. So just in as a concept, we're talking about centuries from now and our technology getting better so that we can go to stars. Um, if we could and if there was a black hole handy, um, I mean, it, in principle, you can get energy from it because it's a gravitational engine. You can harness the gravitational field in different ways. It's intense gravity, but it's not... It's not a better energy source than anything else, you know. It's uh, it can be. I mean, the big black holes I was talking about, these quasars, these active galaxies, they can convert energy, a mass, into energy, into radiant energy at 40% efficiency. So that's in the e equals m c squared sense. And the sun, as a star or any star like the sun, only converts equals 
mc squared with 0.7% efficiency. So black holes can do it in 40%. So they're, they're way more efficient than a star at making radiant energy. So yeah, if you had a black hole that, was, that had an accretion disk and was de devouring matter and the surroundings getting very hot, it's particle accelerating like crazy, um, there's a lot of energy coming out. You know, could you harness it and do something useful with it? Not necessarily. It's not. Uh, so I don't really see a, a good practical. So basically, I can I can make like a battery out of a potato, but I can't do anything with a black hole. No, you couldn't. If if you had one nearby, if you had a tame one, uh, you could harness the gravity power. And then there's actually a a very I wrote about this just because I was wanting to go crazy at the end of a book once about the far future of the universe. What are, what are people going to do when all the stars are dead? Because the stars in the universe, you know, our galaxy and all others, eventually will die, and there'll be no sunlight, no radiation. So civilizations or life that depends on stars, energy, will have to look elsewhere. And all that will be left is stellar corpses. So the universe will get really dark in this era. Very, very far future. This is at least a trillion years out before this happens. So um, in that universe, where you've no longer got starlight and stellar fusion as a power source that you can freely harness, then black holes become more interesting because their gravity potential is you can extract energy from it. And the easiest first thing you can do is uh, the black holes are all spinning because they form from a normal star that spins, and when it collapses, it spins faster, conservational angular momentum, skaters, etc. Um, so the black hole has a lot of angular momentum, and so it's very easy. This is like the freshman, sophomore physics almost. You can send projectiles near the event horizon, and it couples to the black hole, and it'll extract a little bit of angular momentum and energy from the black hole, and then comes out. So basically, you can throw things close to the black hole, and they come out with a little more energy than they had coming in. So you can, if you were clever and had the, a civilization to do this near a black hole, you could just pull energy out of a black hole that way. And what you're basically doing is just slowing it, slowly spinning it down, which would still take a long time. It's a lot of energy. So that's a that's a way in the far future of the universe when the stars are all dead that you can use a black hole to sustain solar power, technically. Yeah, it's a, it's a very in, indirect form of solar power. Uh, and then, of course, if you get, and then when then you spun down all the black holes and they're not spinning anymore, there's no more energy there. Then you've got one other recourse, and this is getting pretty desperate. You could, they do have this radiation. So if Hawking was right, there's some very feeble radiation coming off a black hole. So then you build a Dyson sphere around them, and you know those are the hypothetical spheres named after Freeman Dyson, where we we in you know the Earth intercepts a billionth of the sun's radiation, and we usefully use like one in a thousand parts of that, so we're very inefficient. But if you wanted to harness more of your star's radiation, you'd, you'd go close to it and build an energy-trapping sphere and then beam that energy with microwaves or whatever back to your planet. So that's a classic science fiction idea, and it's a conceivable technology of the future, Dyson Sphere. But it was intended to be around a normal star. Well, when the stars are all dead and the universe is dark, you could build the Dyson sphere around a black hole and extract its Hawking radiation. It's a pretty pathetic number. It's like a thousand watts, I think, if you do the math. So, could you run a civilization on a thousand watts? Well, maybe in the future you're going to be very efficient. So, yes, maybe you could. 
But that's pretty much all you got at that point. That's your last source of energy in the far future of a universe dominated by black holes and dead stars and so on. Yeah, that's like Walking Dead of Space, and it's really creepy. Um, but, and this is obviously the, the non-scientist here thinking, our universe is expanding. Mm-hmm. Are there more stars being born? The star formation rate of the universe is just going down steadily now, partly because of the expansion, when it's accelerating expansion. So the galaxies, ours included, are, are sort of mature now. So they had their glory days of huge rates of star formation 10, 8 billion years ago, or first third of the universe, maybe, history. Uh, so pretty much around the universe, the galaxies are quietening down, and more of the more of the stuff you would have made new stars from, which is the gas left over from star formation, or stuff ejected from stars that goes back, gets recycled, there's less and less and less of that as time goes by, because more and more of the mass is locked into stellar corpses that don't return any of it to the medium between stars. And the universe is getting more diffuse and thin, so there's less gas available near a galaxy or anywhere. So this whole business of forming new stars is this part of why it's the universe is going to go dark. It will quench eventually. And eventually it's about a trillion years. So it's, it, we know the time it's going to take. It's a, it'll be a very slow process. You know? Kind of sucks, though. But at the same point, I mean, you know, it's, it's served its purpose. It's done its time. Well, it's just, you know, it's just, uh, I think it's unreasonably sentimental to be all attached to stars. You know, like they're just fusion energy reactors. I mean, we should, if we're still worried about a star's radiation to sustain ourselves in a hundred or a thousand years then we're we're not doing a very good job so there are plenty of ways of making artificial lights in the sky or artificial energy sources or you know if you need to reassure yourself with the sun you'll have an artificial sun you'll get your energy from some other source one of the guests we had on our show a few months back was mr ufo himself timothy green beckley and Mm -hmm. um he stayed in touch uh, with the show and with me, and, and the new thing is he's obsessing on the documents that are going to be released in June, supposedly with um, technology that may be alien that we don't know about. Mm-hmm. Do you think that somehow, somewhere we may have some, not necessarily alien, but maybe something developed that they're not telling us, that does give us the ability to possibly go the speed of light or close to it? Yeah, I mean, well, there's a few couple of issues all tangled up here. I mean, the first, just the UFO issue and the technology that people claim to see. So, so you know, probably if we sort of are just going to put a heavy asterisk by accounts of alien abduction and stuff like that, and just, and where they're going to put a heavy asterisk by anecdotal visual evidence you know people reporting something they saw well how much did you drink and what were you smoking and what exactly. you know, etc et and if we're going to put an asterisk by the visual you know the photographs or images because it's easier to fake an image now digitally than it was back in the old days when it was photography so we put asterisks by all those things not to discount them all but just to say well these are just too hard to evaluate or they're too easy to fake or I just don't want to put the effort into it because there's so much of that stuff. It's low-grade information. The interesting category for me is 
I think these reports, some of which come from military sources, of extremely unusual motions, you know, sort of non-physical motions of UFOs, of sort of flying unidentified objects that do kind of radical things in the sky. Well, literal UFOs, not necessarily aliens, but just something we haven't been able to identify. Right. So, so just say those are striking enough, they're worth noting. Um, and then you have the explanations. Well, okay, you're always trying to do the conventional explanation. The conventional explanation is it's quite plausible the military has technologies that we don't know about because that's part of their job, right? They're, they're in an arms race with their competitors and they're very well funded, trillion dollars a year in the U.S., pretty much, and they're going to be able to develop all sorts of crazy things and be at the cutting edge. So maybe they have you know weird propulsion technologies and mechanisms. So that's the first guess. Um, I think you'd have to pretty comprehensively and thoroughly rule that out before you'd even start thinking about aliens, because it's just a more radical... Oh, I'm with you on that. I mean, a, look at how many of those... Oh, I'm hypothesis. sorry. I yeah, it's a say... radical hypothesis, and, you know, Carl Sagan, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, whoever's aphorism you want. You know, the bar should be appropriately high for for that. I always say, look at all those people that had the UFO sightings and gave the descriptions, and ironically, so many of them look like the stealth bomber. <laughs> they yeah. are seeing experimental flights that they didn't know what but, the hell they were. And people are really bad eyewitnesses, so we know that. I mean, the, the, the literature about that you'd never want to be in a court case where you're going to go down because of an eyewitness report. That's a, that they're so unreliable in the legal framework. Uh, in At night and in unfamiliar settings, people are very unsure. They, they just don't know what they're seeing. I mean, the thing I know, because it's well passed around in astronomy circles when we're dealing with UFO claims, is that in the fraction of UFO sightings where the sighting is specific enough to say, well, I was here, it was this angle in the sky, and it was at this time. When you have the actual time, place, and orientation, so that information, which you often don't have. But if you have that, then astronomers can weigh in and say, oh, what could have been around then? And when they do that, for those sightings, about a third of the time it's Venus. And, you know, people don't know what Venus looks like. Most people don't know about the sky. And when Venus is low, of course, it refracts and has atmospheric effects, so it can look like it's hovering or moving side to side or shimmering. It's just optical effects in the refracting atmosphere, not surprising. It's a bright object. It's unfamiliar if you're not out there and looking at the sky all the time. So, so that's a very simple, mundane thing that kind of sucks up, mops up a huge, a large number of sightings where you have enough information to, to say what might have been there in that part of the sky. That doesn't, you know, mitigate or deny all the other ones, but it's it's indicative of something. But there's there's astronomy in this field as well as possible aliens. Well visiting. yeah, I was gonna say you could say that, but I'm gonna say Bigfoot's flying the spaceships. Yeah. I mean, it's got a heavy, <laughs> got got a heavy foot probably if they're going warp speed. So Yeah, but do you think that there's even the remote possibility now that there's someone on this planet with the technology to approach the speed of light? It's unlikely. I mean, even if, even for astronomers, including myself, were willing to countenance the likelihood, even, of intelligent life beyond Earth, you know, it exists. And if it does exist, it's, it's fairly plausible that some of it will be more advanced than us, because 
why wouldn't it be? Um, it's still bounded by the laws of physics. I mean, the confidence I have as a physicist is that the laws of physics that I've studied and seen in the lab and seen in the universe are universal. They really are universal. You don't get a, a speed yeah. of light in one part of the universe and not in the other. You don't get to, you know, the laws of nature do not bend according to what part of the galaxy you're in. So aliens are going to be subject to the laws of physics too, and that that's a constraint, right? So they can't just do anything. But and not so, aliens. But something on this planet, maybe, you know, crazy German scientists that have developed this technology. I mean, do you think it's even possible or conceivable that in our lifetime we'll see something that can approach that power? I mean, the energy requirements, it's, gonna, it's another sort of sophomore physics type calculation to figure out you know, if you took a, a space capsule with a few astronauts in it, like an Apollo capsule, what would it take to get that to half the speed of light? And I, I don't remember exactly the number, but it's something like the energy consumption of the world for 10 years. That's just, and that's, that's just a half the speed of light. That's not relativistic, like close to the speed of light. And it's not a huge object. It's just a space capsule with three people on it. So the energy requirements for near light speed travel are just phenomenal. And that's, not, that's physics. There's no obvious way around it. So uh, that people get stuck at that point. And then you're just reaching for wormholes and even more hypothetical and grandiose uh, things that we don't know about. They're not ruled up. You know, I won't say, no, never, wormholes can't exist, don't exist. I mean, in relativity, you could conjure up wormholes. It's not, it's not beyond the theory. It's just that this universe doesn't seem to have made them as far as we can tell so far. And I know you got to go soon, so i got two more quick questions for you. The first one is, if tomorrow you were given the opportunity to go up in one of these ships, to go into space, would you do it at this point? You mean a, an Elon Musk thing or an Yeah, an thing? Elon Musk thing. Any, I mean, if I wasn't having to pay top dollar the millions of bucks it's going to cost, sure, I'd do it. I mean, it's... Uh, it's a, I remember this is a little telling anecdote from when I was a postdoc. So I was at Caltech when the Challenger um, blew up, first first shuttle loss. And uh, and we were in the coffee room the morning after, and it was very somber. You know, everyone had seen it and watched the video and so on. Um, and then in the middle of sitting around this room with a bunch of, bunch of grad students and postdocs doing physics and astrophysics, someone just asked, you know, okay, we know what just happened yesterday, but if NASA called you, and said, no questions asked, you get to go up in the next one for free, would you? And everyone put their hand up, me included. So, you know, and I'm in that camp. I mean, I, I know it's risky. Yeah, there's risk. Uh, and I, I would do it, yeah, there's a chance. Yeah, see, I'm not, I'm not. Lauren, you, even, you're going to go even, up? Even, um, yeah. Oh, see, no. I don't know. I don't know. I, I went um, a couple of years ago, I went to... Um, Professor Brian Cox's arena tours and he was talking about black holes and very much everything he was saying and it was just very reassuring what he said that very similar things like yes there'll be asteroids there always will be and some will some will get through and the the very big worrying ones you know there's people up there looking out for it and that it's that he thinks that space travel is just going to become something that we do normally one day. Yeah, I mean, the analogy is with uh, aviation. So, you know, there was the Lindbergh Prize that spurred innovation that led to commercial aviation in the 1930s. 
And in the 1930s, it was dangerous and super expensive, and hardly anyone did it. And I think the private space industry just thinks we're now about there, and we'll go another, and then post-Second World War, commercial aviation just took off, and we know how safe and ubiquitous it is. So it'll take a while. On a compressed time scale, I think commercial space flight will go that same route. And here's the other question, because I know we're running short, but for the listeners out there who are going to be hearing this, that we got our cameras on and we could see each other right now. And after a year of COVID, if you look at me, I look like a Sasquatch. And you have perfectly coiffed hair. <laughs> You've got this neatly trimmed goat. How the hell did you do it? I, I yeah, my wife would not let me leave the house. <laughs> it doesn't COVID or no COVID. So, uh, yeah. So I, I, I have a, a guardian angel, a minder, if you like. And so if I was still, like, back in the good old days of a grad student postdoc, yeah, I'd be unruly and wild and crazy. Um, and also, in my Zoom world at the university, I still have to pull meetings with senior administrators and or donors or people who are funding my research. So Yeah, yeah I, but you're Dr. Impey. You could just drop the mic. It doesn't matter what you look like. You could well, be no, like, still, listen I up. Still, I still need money. I still need money for my <laughs> research and my program, so... I still go with begging cap in hand to the National Science Foundation and NASA and, and donors and so on. So yeah, no, you gotta you gotta play the game. No, well, uh, play the game. Look at Einstein. That's right. Yeah, but he's beyond. <laughs> there's people that are in a beyond category. So uh, yeah, I think you're there, brother. It was part of his mystique too. I mean, it was also part of his uh, charisma. The fact that he was decidedly informal. I mean, super consciously informal and didn't stand on ceremony and he did that. That's good. That's one of the reasons people like Einstein as a as a figure beyond the science. Now, and I and I gotta say before you go that it's such an honor to have you on the show because I mean I'm, I am a fan. I, I am such a science nerd and you know I'm the guy who sits there watching you know your lectures at the Royal Institute on YouTube when everyone else is you know watching the new music videos but you have the unique ability to explain these just mind-blowing things in such a manner that anybody can get it. And I know you've talked to kindergartners, you've talked to monks, you've talked Buddhist monks, you've talked to everybody. Uh, A, you should be really proud of that. And how the hell did you develop that skill? Well, I mean, kindergartners are the good training ground because if you can stop them from squirming and wandering off and getting into Play-Doh or Lego or whatever after five or ten minutes, that, that's a pretty good test. So I, I think I cut my teeth on schools, school, <laughs> younger school audiences. Buddhist, man, Buddhist monks are easy. They're a piece of cake because they're, they're, they absorb like a sponge and they're totally with you and they're, you know, they're, they're almost a perfect student, I think. But yeah, if you want to if you want to get your chops as an educator or communicator, go with the kindergartners. That'll keep you honest and keep you thinking up new analogies and using your hands and getting up and moving and all that stuff. Did you tell the monks that they're all going to get sucked into a black hole, so it's no point anymore? They don't worry <laughs> about it anyway. They they're so dis- they're so detached at a fundamental level that they, there's nothing you can tell them that would perturb them or scare them or worry them or whatever 
so yeah, and they're thinking they've got the long game. Their cosmology is trillions of years, so they're not they're not too worried about their little piece of the existence. Yeah, they're one with the universe. It's okay. Yeah, pretty much. Well, I cannot thank you enough for doing this. And please say you'll come back at a time and sure, it was fun. I was glad to meet you finally, and uh, both of you and. And uh, be with you. And, yeah, we can do it again. Sometime. You want to send a message to Physics Dave, who's uh, going into your your hood with black holes, and say, "Hey, you know, get off my lawn." That's okay. I'm I'm moving into exoplanets now. I'm getting all fired up about exoplanets. Like I think I want to write a book about that. So I still love black holes, but I think exoplanets are going to be the thing for the next decade. There you go. Yeah. See, Dave. When Dave, you listen to this, you don't have to wear the competition anymore. Yeah. Please, come back out. We'll talk exoplanets. Yeah. Talk about exoplanets, yeah. Absolutely. Anytime you want, let us know. Lauren, anything before we go? Um, Thank you very much for um, agreeing to join us. It's been fascinating. Thank you. Good to meet you too, Lauren and Brian. Okay, take care. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Oh, Lauren, what did you think about the doctor? That was fantastic. I just can't believe how much you were freaking out about black holes, though. That's kind of like, wow. You know, they're there. They're there at the centre of the universe. What are you going to do? They they, they kill everything. Well, the way that Brian Cox described it was like, it's like a cup of coffee. Like, the the universe um, is like a cup of coffee. And then when you add milk and there's clouds in the coffee, and at the moment we're still in the cloud bit. And then it will settle. And then when it settles, that's when you've got to worry about it. Because while it's still moving and still in flux and all the changes are happening... Kind of scares me. Then we're okay. We'll be fine. Well, yeah, I'm not going to live to be a trillion, but... Did you know, though, we've had asteroids in the UK um, hit the the UK. They were caught on somebody's um, bell camera. You know the smart... Um, doorbells you get. Yeah. Um, one caught an asteroid. Lauren, how do you think my hair looks today? It looks fine. <laughs> Is it, do, do I look like <laughs> Einstein? Are you trying to change the subject right going, Oh yeah, asteroids are hitting the UK. Yeah, asteroids hit the UK. That's it's great, Lauren. How's my hair? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, this has got you terrified, doesn't it? It's a little scary. Um, That's okay. The cats will survive, and they will rise up, and Cleo will be queen of the cats. Planet of the cats, like Planet of the Apes? Yeah. Get your stinking paws off me, you damn dirty feline. <gasps> She'd rub your face off if you said that to her. <laughs> Did you just say it to her? No. What, do you think I'm crazy? <laughs> I'll, I'll get you when you're sleeping. I, I see you. Lauren, like I've got another person that will feed me. Lauren, can I can I point something out to you? What? That was Dr. fucking Impy. I know. No, that's like... That's like King Shit of Fuck Mountain of Science. I know. How the hell did we get him? I don't... <laughs> that's your department. The guy's lecturer at the Royal Institute. Yeah, I'll come on your show. I'll talk about black holes and scare the shit out of you, Brian. He did it to scare you. I mean, he probably just enjoys scaring you. And seriously, how good did he look? 
Very well. How do you look like that during this pandemic? Guy's a rock star. It's, it's like he says he's got he's got a like he's got a, a, a people facing job, regardless of the pandemic. So do I. Uh, you know, you we, don't go- we host a talk show. We face people. Last week I had on the love of my life. <laughs> I think she liked the beer, yeah. though, don't you? Um, though I did show Theo footage of her wrestling, and I think you might have competition on your hands. Oh, told you. Everyone's going to fall. How great was she, too? I mean, I am just, like, two weeks. I, I love all our guests. You know how giddy I get. But we, the love of my life and, like, the rock star of science. And you know what's coming up soon. Where'd you go? I'm still here. I, I don't know what's coming up soon. I'm trying to think. I forgot. I am bringing on my co-author. Danny oh, yes. Murphy is going to be joining us very soon. And we're going to do an entire episode about his other works. But about our book. Because it comes out in just a week. I know. It's so exciting. Um, yeah, Theo's still asking about when you're going to get him to talk to Carmela. You know, it's tough during the pandemic, tell him. I know I did say that. He's pretending to talk to her on the phone. <laughs> I, I I got to talk to Hollywood, so, you know. Ha ha, Theo. Um, yeah, but the thing is, though, he's six and very charismatic. He he had six girlfriends at one point. I think he can steal somebody away from you. Yeah. And who wouldn't be charmed by Theo? I mean, he probably he could probably steal Cleo from you as well. Yeah, he probably could. Well, no, because Sarah's here, so Cleo would never leave Sarah. But I'm going to have to leave you because she's got to eat this little kitty. Yeah. And uh, you're just scared that I that I'm not freaked out by black holes and that I go in space and you're just judging me now. Yeah, you know. I... <laughs> Physics Dave can attest to this because me and him will have these like really deep conversations about the universe and the cosmos and things, and then I won't sleep for a week and I'll like be texting him at like four in the morning going, You asshole. This is the shit that scares me. But like he said, it, there's there's telescopes everywhere and they know what they're gonna do and that there's the technology out there not to destroy them but to move them away so they don't hit us. And also we've got pretty Good buffer planets. I mean, poor old Jupiter has taken a taken one for us. Yeah, we got we got you know. There's there's bumpers in the snooker game of the cosmos. I, w- oh. I was scared when I saw that as a child when those asteroids hit. It was Jupiter, wasn't it? Yes. And I was scared when I saw that because it was just like these holes on Jupiter. But I'm not going to fear now because I'm too excited that we talked to the doctor. And before we go, I want to remind everybody to check out our social media. Go to TA History or History TA on Twitter. Or email us at trans.history.rambling at gmail.com. And Lauren, hit us up with the Facebooks and the Twitter. I mean, the, the TikTok and the, and the Instagram and all that fun stuff. Um... So, uh, Facebook is History Ramblings with Lauren and Brian. TikTok is at History Ramblings. And um, uh, Instagram is also at History Ramblings, too. That's right. And I want to thank Jake and Tim for sending in those questions. 
And anybody out there, send in questions or suggestions for guests or anything you want to hear on the show, feel free to reach out to us. Go to our merch store. There's a link in the description of this show that will take you to uh, all our t-shirts and hoodies and onesies. And we sold our first onesie. Someone bought a Transatlantic History onesie, Lauren. I want to see a picture of that. There's going to be a Transatlantic History baby out there somewhere. Um, oh, it was a baby mugs. onesie, was it? Yeah, they only sell baby it... onesies. Oh, no, because you can get adult onesies and they freak me out. Not on our store, you can't. Oh, thank goodness. That <laughs> freaks me out. But yeah, get your coffee mugs, t-shirts, sweatshirts, hoodies, uh, onesies, stickers, phone cases, laptop cases, posters, anything you want of our Transatlantic History Ramblings original design, our new logo put together by the fantastic Misha Malcolm, and also Pro Planet Pluto merchandise is available on our site. So everyone go check that out. Check out past episodes. Like the show. You know, give it five stars, thumbs up, review it. Send us messages, send us emails. Lauren will read your bedtime stories if you do. Uh, also tell us how obnoxious Brian is. <laughs> and... In our next episode, we will be giving away an autographed copy of the book. Autographed by the authors, myself and Danny Murphy. So tune in and uh, watch the Facebook page. Yeah, you're banned. You're banned from running that competition after last time. Well, we'll do a different one. Okay, I screwed up the uh, the book giveaway. (laughs) It's not my fault that number sign has become hashtag in the world of online social media (laughs) and that's a story for another show but yes (laughs) lauren i am gonna shut this one down for now so from brian in buffalo and lauren in swansea good night good night so i'm used to Just turning up, you know, just going to a random place and being stabbed.